courthouse. There'll be a hearing to determine if a crime's been committed and whether it should go for trial. Well, haven't they already found the man to blame? That depends. Some people may think the man to blame is your husband. Don't joke about this, George. I'm not joking. We can't afford a scandal, not when I'm so near. I'm taking a party to see Mr. Edison's lights, and I've set a date for Gladys's ball. I'm glad to hear it. But it won't happen if you're on trial. I'd have to cancel. My dear, I don't make the rules. I will do everything within my power to defend myself. What more can I say? But I've already settled a date with Mr. McAllister. <laughs> oh, God forbid I should be a disappointment for Mr. McAllister. If you think this is funny... I don't think it in the least funny that I'm facing the possibility of prison and my wife is more concerned with the date of a ball. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode seven of the Gilded Age, which was called Irresistible Change. It was written by Lord Julian Fellows. And once again, Michael Angler was back to direct. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses HBO series. Guys, it's the hottest place to be to talk about the Gilded Age. Also, mm -hmm. I put up if you're looking to start doing early Christmas shopping or you other have like luncheon guests coming and you need presents, I have a great shot of the Ward McAllister bejeweled and monogram cigarette case. Uh, I've, ah. I've put up on the Facebook group so you guys can get a good look at what it looked like and, uh, you know, start ordering it for your friends. Gorge, so. man. I love it. Is this a thing now? Am I going to, whenever I have someone come over for lunch or if we go out to like Applebee's, for I have lunch. to like for luncheon <laughs> and, uh, or we go to like Applebee's, like I have to bring like monogrammed bejeweled presents. I mean, I think you should, it would be fancy of you to start doing that, but <laughs> you know, what do you have like around the house? You could just bring as a small token. I have uh, cat hair. I could, bring, I could do like little stitch dolls of cat hair. I don't know. Oh God. Like it's like the, like in 1883, you can make like a horse hair, like rocking horse, exactly. but it's like a little cat. Exactly. Like, you know, like stitch it into like a little doll. Be like, there this, you go. This is a little Elvira doll for you. <laughs> Just a reminder that we've assumed that you have watched the episode. So we're not going to go step by step and recap this, but we are going to have spoilers in here. So if you haven't watched, please go watch and come on back. I wrestled with two concepts that I think are related and I'm curious when I when I say them how they hit you. This okay. idea of having blinders on or having blind spots for things that other people see that maybe you are not seeing either intentionally or willfully or just because of your own point of view you can't see together with this idea of the changing world. This this inevitability of mar time marches forward, not backwards. Those are both great themes. I mean, I, I see them in a bunch of the different characters. So, yeah, let's follow that. I mean, I think the changing world theme is a show theme. I don't think it's just particularly this episode, but it's certainly hammered home in this episode. Uh, the, the entire idea of taming electricity, just listening to them talk about, you know, we've known about electricity, but Mr. Edison's tamed it and now he controls it like it's like an animal in a cage kind of thing. Well, we take it for granted in 2021, but think in 1882. It's even 2022 already, Mike. Holy I shit. Say? 
what, 2021? 2021. Oh, God. You I know. Should, it's you, a changing times, you Mike. You have see to change. my checkbook. I'm still to 2022. doing 2022. I'm still doing 2016 <laughs> in my checkbook. So don't even, oh, I still have a checkbook. I mean, right there tells you everything. <laughs> it sucks that we've started 2022 and like February came so quick and now it's just like two, 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 two on everything. February came fast this year. Yes. With all its twos. And, and bringing with it my birthday. So another year around the sun complete for me. So, yeah, um, super old now. Oh, oh my God. I've never felt more like someone wowed <laughs> by electricity. Yes. So creaky. So creaky. <laughs> I need to be like lowered into my chair before we record. Watching their faces at the end of the episode when the lights come on, there's this New Year's Eve vibe and like charge like electricity going through the air really uh on their faces they're witnessing the world changing we can't stress enough how radical a world change electric light really was i mean the show i think does a really good job of showing us that but take a step back and think about it if you were relying on candles or oil lamps and now light magically appears in your room it's like sorcery. It's like magic to many people, you know? I wrote in my notes, what a wonder it would be to see those lights turn on and know now from our POV that that lights would be on in New York City forevermore. There would never be a point when there wouldn't be a light on in New York City. And just what a, an amazing event that would be to witness. Can we talk about that model show, though? Because holy smokes, did I think something was going to go radically wrong? I thought for sure. You and I must have seen a show somewhere along the line where a model catches fire because I know you thought it caught on was going to catch on fire. And I 100 percent could like envision it catching on fire. Like it's like that image is already in our heads. I think in Back to the Future, Doc Doc Brown makes a model of Marty in the car clicking Uh the wire and the wire catches fire and everything burns on the model that he makes to show Marty. Then that's exactly. Exactly why we think that, isn't it? It's just in our brains. It's a hundred percent. I think that's a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, look, Java's just a model charged just by a battery. That's the kind of thing like our third graders do in science class now, <laughs> you know. And here you have these grown men, these titans of business, going, "Oh, you know." But it's you. But, <laughs> but but I mean, but it, it's rad. The world has literally changed overnight. And it, the show does such a good job because you have all of this going on and then you go to the Van Ryn house and you have Agnes passed out on the couch and She's literally sleeping on the changes that are happening. Just because you put your head in the sand doesn't mean the world stops. It just means you're missing it as it goes. We've both been hard on Marion at different points in the show, I think for valid reasons. I felt so bad for her this entire episode. She was just getting it in the teeth constantly because of the Edison lighting event, and she wasn't going to it, literally seeming the only person under the age of 70 who was not at this event. And I felt so bad for her. I don't know how you were feeling about her, but that scene where she's standing at the the window looking back at her aunts just broke my heart for her. I thought surely she was going to sneak out and go to the event at that point because everybody was there. But no, you're exactly right. I mean, I had a lot of empathy for the FOMO she was feeling in that moment. And just the idea that it's not just that she wasn't going, it's that everybody else in her little sphere was going and she like knew about it. Like when Bertha's like, there's not enough room in the carriage for you. And Peggy's like, I didn't want to tell you, but I'm going like, it was like, oh my God, ouch. Like, that is what would kill me, is that everybody else I knew was going. Let us move on. 
I'm glad you've come. I want to ask your advice, or perhaps your permission. Yes. I'm planning a picnic, and I want to ask Mr. Rakes. Aurora says she sees him everywhere these days. That's if you don't object, of course. Well, why should I object? Because I'm afraid there won't be room for you. Oh. We're going in two carriages, so each place is at a premium. Picnic in carriages? That's a lovely idea. What fun you'll have. I'm jealous. I'd love to be there. The trouble is, we have only eight seats. I've got Larry, Gladys, Mr. McAllister, the Fanes, and a friend of Aurora's, which leaves one to fill, and we need a man to fill it. Not Mr. Russell. Mr. Russell is a guest of Mr. Edison. Then Tom Rakes is the man for you. It's so maddening of Aurora to land me with Miss Bingham. Otherwise, it could have been you. More coffee? Bertha's just savage. I mean, we talk about Agnes having a biting tongue, but Bertha can really just fucking stiletto knife you right in the right between the ribs. But I think that she was just giving straight information, and that is okay by me. I, I don't think she was saying it's it to still her savage, in though. Any way. I mean, it still comes up as no room for you. <laughs> Not like no room for you. She said it's too bad that there's no room because I would, you know, I would have rather it be you. I do want to like pause for a second. The Aurora and Sissy Bingham connection and why we are having to drag her around. Let's talk about that for a hot second. Here's my theory, and this is wrapped up maybe in some historical knowledge that I went and dig, like deep diving, trying to dig through. I couldn't find a Sissy Bingham in history that stood out, but we know when Tom and Marion are at, at Mrs. Chamberlain's house, Tom, it just showing off, I think, a little bit of his true colors, knows every detail about Sissy Bingham, knows her entire family's history, knows all the dark secrets, knows every, in a way that belies how long he's actually been in New York. Like, he is so clued in on every single detail. I think it's really sus, the way he acts. But that being aside, she mentions that Sissy is the niece of Henry Flagler. Now, Henry Flagler was one of the richest people that, like, ever lived. He was one of the founders of Standard Oil, uh, the the giant original oil company, one of the original Robert Barron oil companies. His third wife was Mary Lily Keenan Flagler Bingham. That's quite a mouthful. Henry Flagler dies. She inherits his money. Three years later, she marries her boyfriend from like the 1890s, who is a Judge Robert Bingham, who they all know each other because they all they were socialites from North Carolina. That's where I'm getting to with this. Uh, and that's where they, they made their money and their houses initially. Yes, they ended up having places in New York City. Yes, they had eventually had places in Newport, but they were North Carolina people. I think that Sissy Bingham maybe is not always in New York, and maybe she was an out-of-towner who was visiting, and that's why she had to be brought along. So Mary Lilly marries Robert Worth Bingham, who is otherwise not like anyone in New York City. She dies under suspect uh, circumstances a year later, and her descendants have actually since written books. There were a couple of books in the 80s that came out that alluded to that maybe Bingham actually killed her, but she had done a change to her will, and actually he only inherited $5 million, even though she was worth, I think the fortune was, it was somewhere between 70 and like $130 million it was valued at when she died. Judge Robert Bingham would be the relation of sissy then that's how you get to henry flagler that's how she gets into society here so they're kind of an upstart 
up-jump family. Like, she's the Binghams themselves were not, like, a Gilded Age family. It was the connection through the ex-wife of Henry Flagler, it seems, in, rea- in real life, that got them into high society. Why Aurora is bringing her and not Marion, who knows? But it does set up this dynamic where Aurora gets to see mr rakes being mm-hmm. kind of a rake right the with that whole conversation at the end about newport and the arm touching and filling up her champagne glass this is not good i'm devoted to marrying behavior they have all kinds of stuff you know you said the rakes thing last time but i'm there's also that tomcat thing like just going around sniffing around at anything kind of guy He's totally like that. He grosses me out. When he has that one line, Mike, about basically like you need to marry me because otherwise, uh, you know, basically before I get distracted with someone else, I was like barfing in my mouth. I was like, for rules. Let's listen to that clip. Before I go, may I offer a little of what I've gleaned from my own experience? Of course. When you're young, it feels a small thing to turn your back on society But as the years go on, it can be a lonely place out there. Make sure you are very much in love as I was, or there may come a day when the road you've taken does not seem worth it. Ever the diplomat. But our love will be enough. I know it. You sound as if you're trying to convince yourself. I am convinced. The fact remains. I don't want to quarrel and I don't want to scandal. Not if we can avoid it. I know you mean your aunts, but why can't we just stand up to them? It isn't Aunt Ada. She'll help us if she can. It's Aunt Agnes. Do you love me, Marion? As much as I love you? That's what I need to know. What do you think? Marry me. Marry me now. It's so gross. The if you love me, you would marry me thing. And and totally steamrolling over Chamberlain's advice, which is good advice. And I like that Marion stands up for herself and calls time out a little bit, you know, and says, it sounds like you're trying to convince yourself. Yeah, that was a little bit like a dun 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 that I, I was proud of Marion for hearing that in his voice and recognizing that. But that was scary that it I mean, no one should be convincing anyone of anything here. I wish they just both like knew how they actually felt and and we're going forward with it, whatever it is. Tom is just so freaking messy for me, like and only gets increasingly messy with every single interaction he has with Marion. Just to anyone out there, it's a red flag if your partner is saying we have to get married or else I'm going to fuck around on you. That's essentially uh, what he's saying here. I mean, yeah. the, 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 there's not even really lines to be read between. He is saying that in the flowery language of the show. There are, I mean, he says distractions and sideshows, more like side pieces. He's going to fuck around on Marion if they don't get married. That's, that's what he's saying here. That's a huge red flag. Like, blinders, blinders and blind spots. Like, Marion hears it a little bit, but she doesn't hear it nearly enough. I think it's the first time I think I felt her have a little bit of, like, the pushback in terms of, like, why are you having to convince your own self? Like, what's up with that? You know, she never takes it as far as, you know, it could be taken in terms of, like, well, if it's if you're so easily, you know, peeping on other sideshows, then, you know, go. What are you doing? At least she hasn't said yes yet. She's still just listening and still trying to make up her mind and figure this out. I would rather girl figure out her own brain than just kind of accidentally fall into this 
situation even further. If she is going to say yes, then I want her to make a decision to say yes and not just sort of accidentally give in to one of these, you know, romantic pleas from him. I think it shows a lot of strength of character that she hasn't been browbeat into his Me full core too. press. I give Me her a too. lot of credit for it. I mean, th- this is this is the arc and the evolution of Marion, right? We said that the back half of the season we felt was going to be her, she having hit kind of a low point of not knowing how the world worked and not knowing how to be a friend and not knowing about love. And these back end episodes showing us that she's learning all of those things. I think the fact that she, this is three, four episodes now, if you go all the way back to the the lady, Statue of Lady, uh, Statue of Liberty Hand, she hasn't given him an answer, no, but she also hasn't said yes yet. And I think a lot of of people in her position would have been browbeat into saying yes at this point. Yeah, I mean, and I think I even asked you a couple of times, like, did you, did she nod in that scene? Because I wasn't sure if she gave any kind of indicator, but I was proud of her. You know, upon rewatch, we were both like, no, 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 she didn't, she didn't nod her head. She, she kept, she kept solid in that moment, uh, which was hard because, I mean, she has to be feeling intense pressure. I mean, think about everything they're doing, being in Chamberlain's house, creating all these, this subterfuge that they're doing here. That alone creates this tension and this feeling of like, I need to make a decision, right? Like I'm, I'm doing this, I'm being in this house right now because I'm supposed to be getting to know him and make a decision. Like I could feel the tension in that house if I was her of like, you need to figure this out because you can't keep sneaking around and doing this. Like the, it creates like this timeline for you of like, how long do you think you can sneak around? Right, and it's again, another, it's an interesting way that Rakes takes in the beginning of the episode when she reveals that Mrs. Chamberlain has opened up their house for them to meet and and have these clandestine meetings and get to sit and talk. His takeaway from there is, ooh, you like to take risks. Like, he takes that as a good thing, like that she's yeah. open to breaking the rules and defying. All of his takes are kind of gross when you look at it from the right <laughs> lens. I thought he was going to say the line of, like, like any of us might say now, say like, you were talking to someone about me? Like, because that's kind of exciting. Like, oh, you're starting to talk to your friends about me and our situation. Like, there's something exciting about that. But you're right that when he when he takes it from the risk standpoint i was like oh tom like ugh. let's play the sideshows clip because i think for people that are listening and we're like well what, what's his red flag language listen to how he talks to her in in this clip right here what should i mind that i love you that my love for you is the best part of me by far <laughs> You're a good man, Tom. Think of your kindness to me when I was a stranger in desperate straits. Wasn't it time we took control of our own lives? We're young, Marion. We love each other. What more do we need to know? Otherwise... Otherwise what? There were so many distractions in New York. So many sideshows. It must be easy for people to drift down the wrong path even when they know the right one. Say that. I just want us to be strong enough. To take hold of our future now we have the chance it's emotional manipulation like 101 watching him work this is right out of the playbook of twist your love until i get the answer i want and again i give her credit she hasn't folded she hasn't she hasn't given into it yet but he's doing the full court emotional manipulation press people would be like oh i think it's kind of for me i i as a guy <laughs> i find this revolting behavior because he's not giving her any room to breathe it, yeah, it, it's all about his words, uh, like blanketing her, you know, like she she never gets to say her feelings. It's always 
him saying what her feelings should be, it seems to me. It's a lot of pressure and and that no one should get married or be in a relationship where it's pressure to be in it. Ah, even just the way that he kisses her. And I told you about this like last time in that doorway. He kisses her so aggressively. And and I'm not I mean, it's it's sexy on one hand, but on another hand, it's like he's eating her face. Like it's like, oh, my God, like he's just so much. He's so extra when it comes to what he's doing here. I, I feel for Marion and I feel like because throughout this episode, she feels like she is missing out. There's this added layer of like, well, now he's saying basically if you don't pull the trigger, you're going to miss out because I'm going to go and have all these adventures and do all these other things. Man, could more of this episode be about Marion feeling like if you don't jump into like whatever this is, then you're just going to never get to do anything. You're going to you're going to keep looking at those those ants and be ended up just being the third ant sitting on the couch. You it's know? true. It's true with her when she turns her back to it and it's funny because Agnes even said to her uh, earlier on in the evening before she passes out, she says, you're being very obedient, almost like she expected her, even Agnes almost expected her to sneak out to go to the light show. Marion stays and turns around. And when she's looking at them, you have to be thinking in her head, she's thinking, this is why I need to be reckless with Tom, because this is my life. I'm either going to mm-hmm. be I'm going to be eight or, or Agnes or both or a combination. I have to get out and do something. I was thinking of that obedient line and I was thinking about, you know, all that she's doing to sneak around behind their back. You know, one of the very first rules, if you're sneaking around doing the wrong thing, is you don't change your behavior right. in your regular life. And right. I was like, damn you, Marion, for, for being so obedient now. You have to keep questioning them. You have to keep pushing on them being like, well, why can't I go? Because that's how what you would normally do. So keep with it. Otherwise, they're 100% gonna, gonna suss you out here. They're gonna know that, that you're really doing other things. Things. They're definitely sniffing around her. She does make her case to, to Agnes later on. That's when Agnes has that funny conversation about, does, does he only associate with people with our names? Oh, God, that was so funny. Yeah, very, very funny. But I mean, so she's making her case. She's doing, that's a normal Marion shtick, like checking in, be like, look, here, here's the latest, you know, dossier on Tom Rakes and how he's climbing into society. <laughs> but it, the funny thing is by Marion doing that, all she's proving to Agnes anyway is Agnes feels more and more vindicated that she has got this guy's number. Let's listen to Agnes and Ada talking in the dress shop when Marion isn't there, because I think it it plays directly into this idea. Agnes, if Marion and Mr. Rakes did come to an arrangement... What have you heard? (laughs) Nothing. I just meant that if they did marry, you wouldn't really cut them, would you? Don't you want me to? No. Not at all. I'd like them to think I would. It wouldn't make much difference to Marion. She doesn't care whether Mrs. Astor receives her. Maybe not, but he does. She may think he can give it all up without a pang, but I know better. Isn't it just possible you may have misjudged him? It is just possible an earthquake may destroy New York, but it's not likely. She's playing her own game here. Now, is is she being a little cruel with Marion's heart? Maybe. Maybe she's being a little harsh about it. But I like this idea of she maybe won't actually cut them off, but just the threat of it, while it won't deter Marion because Marion is actually acting out of a heart love-based point of view, she knows Tom 
is only going to tread so lightly because he doesn't want to be cut off or scandalized that way. You know, when I was listening to that whole part, I was thinking, man, what a dangerous game you're playing, Agnes, because you don't want to do that to people, especially young people, where it seems like they're going to act more impulsively because they really think that there are these dire consequences. It's a it's a dangerous game. You know, if, if you really are not intending to have that consequence, it's like a test. There's something about her confidence that she has Mr. Rakes pegged so assuredly you know she makes it in the opposite but you know there's a chance that an earthquake you know destroys new york in the same way there's a chance that i'm wrong about him but she feels mm-hmm. so strongly that she can make this test that it won't cost her anything with marion but she knows it'll reveal rakes for who he is just the threat of it it's a test for sure but it's but it's dangerous to test people is what i'm saying i sure. mean it just it just is it, anything could happen i mean you know she doesn't know what it would push them to do i, I just i Ooh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. I get it. Yeah. So with that fresh on on Agnes's mind and having had that conversation in a dress shop, it's later on in that afternoon that Marion comes and says, look at all these things. Look at all these people he's hung out with. And Agnes, she's unflinching. She says to Marion, she says, I'm not blinded by his good looks and his charms. You're not seeing him correctly. I'm seeing him correctly because I've got nothing invested in and other than my old world, new world prejudice then Marion's never going to hear Agnes's words for what she's tr- the advice she's trying to give because Agnes delivers it in such a blunt way. But we as the audience, I think, get to look at Mr. Rakes via Agnes's opinion. When you do, I think you see where she's coming from. Her opinion makes sense in light of how he's behaving. For my own audience eyes, I actually am going to give a lot of credit to the actor who plays Tom Rakes because for me, it's actually his like micro expressions that are telling on him for me. And he's and he is sending them out of his face. If you watch, there's things that he does, there's smiles he gives, there's these squinting eyes that he does sometimes that I cannot explain it. You have to just watch it. He is telling on himself. And so Agnes is right. She has this objective outside opinion. I mean, there's a reason why that's like a phrase, right? (laughs) Having this objective outside opinion because she's not in the relationship. She isn't going to be, you know, wrapped up in everything he's doing. I love the way that she was, she was kind of being like the supposed good looks and charms. (laughs) Like the way she says it is very like, I don't even find it charming (laughs) or whatever, but supposedly everyone else does. Uh, Tom himself, he is really telling on himself. It's just that maybe. Marion is so um, inexperienced. You know, she 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 doesn't know what to look for. And I maintain, even though I don't think that they've harped on this in the show, that he is ties to an old world for her. Being back in Doylestown and and her father and that life back there, there's more than if he was just a guy who she met here in New York City who could woo her, whatever. There's something about that relationship starting back there. I think really it's tougher to break. You know, it's tougher to see his flaws. Thomas Cockerell is the actor who plays Tom Rakes. Uh, A great example of what you're talking about with the micro expressions and just watching how he talks and interacts. Go back and listen to when at the beginning of the Chamberlain scene, when when Miss Chamberlain first leaves them to go take care of her business and give them alone time. He starts talking about going to the picnic, the carriage picnic to watch the Edison Lighting Show, and he's talking about uh, Sissy Bingham. Watch 
watch him how he talks about her and the family and and the scandal and and all the details there his face lights up it's too animated it's too excited it is and it's mm-hmm. again it's one of those red flag things like you know too much about this other woman and her life you know too much you know too much and you're too excited as you're telling me about it and you're misinterpreting who you're telling it to like right. you know like obviously you don't see her as your great love or or your partner in life because you wouldn't be telling an, about another woman like that right. if you really saw her like that. It's not a locker room where you're just talking with your best guy friend, you know, like this isn't like that. And so it's those kind of moves that you think you would even have that conversation. You think you should even talk about another woman like that to her means you don't see her that way. She isn't the one you're trying to protect. Like, uh-uh. small moments, you guys, small moments. Uh, let's stay inside the Van Ryan household and talk about Oscar and Turner, the drama that unfolds. Remember the end of mm. last week's episode, Armstrong, quote unquote, accidentally lets slip that uh, Turner and Oscar were seen outside of the house together. Oscar asks Marion when they see each other if she is the one who told Agnes I thought that was kind of a weird accusation. I mean, it's not like Jacques, but it's kind of, he kind of accuses her. He's like, I, 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 you know, you're the one who told her, I guess. Why would he think that? And that's again, this is like your cousin. And she doesn't flinch. She's like, oh, no, I, even if I did know, I would have kept your secret. Possibly because Marion is kind of putting off this innocent goody two shoes kind of vibe to someone like Oscar that, yeah, you might think that she's got nothing else going on. She's probably, you know, people and outside and, you know, just looking around. I think, you know, also every woman in that house seems to be out to get him in his mind in terms of peeping on him. So why wouldn't Marion get thrown in with the ants? I think that's another thing, though, is like she's getting thrown in with something that the ants would do, the peeking out the blinds and telling on him and that kind of stuff. She doesn't want to get thrown in with those ants. Like she's she's not she's not one of them. She's one of the cool kids. She's she's young like you, Oscar. But he's not even looking at her like that. Another like, would make you want to make a decision to run off with Tom. Well, what do you mean, well? Only that all men, or almost all, have a fling of some sort when they're young and they live to tell the tale. Oh, this is a tale I'd rather were not told. I just think these things happen. How do you know? Have you been leading a double life? No, but I'm not so simple that I don't know what goes on. You'll be calling yourself a woman of the world next. Well, I'm not Rip Van Winkle, Agnes. And I understand that young men have to sow their wild oats. Even if that were true, they do not have to sow them with servants. What would you prefer, an actress or a prostitute? Ada, I'm going to have to ring for my smelling salts if you do not moderate your tone. You should not even know these words exist. Well, I do. And I know that well-brought-up young ladies are not the girls lighting the cigars of their escorts at Delmonico's. You are forcing me to reevaluate your character. I can't help that. (laughs) Ada's like, bring in the truth. I mean, when when you get to the point where you have to ring for your spelling salts, I mean, this is scandalous language that's being talked about here. Can you imagine you're like planning to faint? You have to call for your spelling salts. I need them on standby. Is this a fair assessment from Ada for the time for her to be making here? And does she think it has any chance of actually working or getting through to Agnes? 
Shoot. I mean, no, it's not. Of course, Agnes wants to think that she raised Oscar to be different than whatever. Even if the rabble, this is the common way to act. She doesn't want to think that Oscar's going to act like that. No, no mom really wants to think their son is out there doing that. You know, not right. really. And it's also, even if he was, that he would be doing it with a higher class woman, a higher of station Of course, woman. that's all that Agnes cares about is who who you're hooking up with. So, oh, no, no, it would it will not do so let's talk about the fact that Agnes getting her full head of steam orders, gives a direct order. A direct order? Could you believe she used that phrase? I could not believe that she used that I phrase. Like, I mean, I guess Yo. I shouldn't be surprised, but it did surprise me. Let's listen to this clip because this is, again, just a very funny clip. Agnes taking an unnecessary shot at Ada while she's making her larger point. Oscar's gone. He's angry with me, but he has no right to be. I'm the one to be angry. Why? What's happened? Oscar has disgraced himself. With Mrs. Russell's maid. How democratic. It is no laughing matter. Really. A cup of Bannister's betrayal is too much. Oscar tried to deny it. Are you telling this story or am I? Although why either of us are telling it to Marion, I do not know. He said they were friendly acquaintances and that was all. Well, I suppose... As if my son would number a lady's maid among his friends. Even Ada thought that was nonsense, and she barely knows how babies are born. Agnes, your anger is making you indelicate. She barely knows how babies are born. <laughs> There's so many lines in this that There's I was no like, There's no reason oh, to take a shot at Ada here, I and she does. I want to say all this stuff, though. I want to be yeah. like, your anger is making you indelicate. Like, I think I'm going to use that one. Put that one in my back pocket. I say stuff like, please soften up, but that's like the same words, man. Uh, so funny here. So she gives a direct order to Marion to go talk to Bertha, her bestie, uh, and have Turner fired. I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to jumping on the Marion, you know, pile and piling on here, though. But I got to tell you, her position that she doesn't see where her role in this is, the, that she's no part of this quarrel, and that Agnes has to explain defending the family honor – the idea that she doesn't see that she is part of the Van Ryan family, and if their honor is being called into question, that involves her. Is this a totally off base? Am I being too harsh? I, I admit this may be a too harsh take for Marion, and I'm fully willing to admit that. But it, it rubbed me the wrong way that she lives in this house. I mean, she had to, she says to Peggy, my aunt lets you live for free. No, Peggy actually fucking works for Agnes. You live in this house for free and mm. you have to be arm twisted to do this thing. Yes, it's awkward, but it's, you know, it, 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 it struck me as a little ungrateful that she was making Agnes have to expel out defending the family honor. It's asking a lot to send someone over to make someone lose their job. Like, I think it's one thing to just say, go over there and, and say X, Y, Z. Like, I don't want Turner hanging out with Oscar, something like that, right? This is just a message from my aunt. But you're actually taking someone's livelihood and saying, like, I want this person fired. I think Marion has, like, a lot of pump the brake moments in that beyond family honor i think that there's there's other things that she's like not wanting to have to do because she's a soft heart and she she doesn't she doesn't want to to be a part of this kind of situation but i'm with you in that either you are a part of the van ryan's family or you aren't like you need to decide on one hand, obviously, you're living in this house. You're getting an allowance. You are you are being allowed to attend based on their invitations because, really, she's always a tag-along. No one's really inviting just 
her, especially at the start. You're right that she does need to be a lot more appreciative and understand like you have to do something. You have to do something. Like we keep using the, the phrase, bring something to the table. Like you have to do something to be, to be of worth to the household. Otherwise you're just, you know, a hanger on and nobody wants that person around. Right, right, right. And I fully agree with you and I fully agree with Marion saying this is awkward. I, I don't want to be in the position of having to go tell another woman to fire her servant. But my umbrage comes more with the overall point of this is not my quarrel. I am here, but I'm not a part of this family. She needs to decide. Then you then don't take an allowance and don't live there for free. Like, you know right. what I mean? Like you're either in or you're out. And this is what we require of family members. So yeah. so maybe she could say, well, I didn't realize that's what being in this family, you know, would entail. Maybe I need to, like, stop and think about it for a second. But you're right. Just to say, like, I'm not a part of this whole thing. Well, you are if you're getting money from the family and everything. Like, yeah. and pick Ada, your and, place. Yes. And, and, and go all the way back to when she first started taking the allowance. And she says to Ada, I don't feel comfortable with this because I can't. I'm not always going to be live, live by her rules, by Agnes's rules. Fine. You, you've made that thing. But there is still something about being a good soldier in a family. Sometimes when you have to – some, being in a family is not all positive. Sometimes it involves you having to do things and get your hands dirty that you maybe don't want to do. That's so Italian of you, sir. <laughs> I also found her how democratic line so tone deaf. Certainly it's her relationship with Agnes is to poke the bear. But this is Agnes being upset about her son and his, and his dignity and his reputation and the family's reputation. In any family – even if you don't want to, quote, get your hands dirty, you can't always just be a taker. You have to give in some way. And I don't know what she's giving. And we've had this conversation and I know I know we've had at least one person write in and say, you know, well, Marion gives, you know, a lot of support to Peggy and, you know, that's what she brings to the table. And, and that's good and that's all great. Um, but I think that's like baseline for friends. Like that's just like the most basic of things is that you should at least say like good job for things. That's the thing for this family. Like if Agnes asks you to do something, that's just like baseline. You know, it's just, she's not. She's not trying to act you, ask you to go take a stand. She's asking you to just deliver a message. That's just baseline, you know, helping out around the house kind of thing. Yes, I agree. I agree. I I I, 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 I want to moderate how much I jump up and down on her in this. You know, maybe you know what? Maybe she really doesn't see herself as a part. Maybe she really does feel like this prisoner. Life circumstances threw her out of Doylestown into this New York City place. And if she had her choice or the ability to be anywhere else, she would. For the time being, you're still here. Yeah. And so that requires, you know, sometimes being the messenger. A hundred percent. Well, so did what did you expect to happen with Turner? And did you appreciate the confusion of who is this man? Since it was never mentioned, there was like this, well, who is this man that Turner was involved with? And everyone gets to spin their own tale. I think George handled it because he was the one whose reaction I was most interested in seeing how he would handle it. And I think he handled it very coolly. I don't think he really portrayed much. And if anything, I think he subtly, in a little manipulation of his own, tipped the scales towards his wife firing Turner by kind of making a may face and saying it's not really his place to say. I think that is kind of code or, or feels like it's going to be taken as it's not my place to say, but you probably should fire her. But I didn't know what was going to happen. Bertha is a little unpredictable. If she doesn't see Larry 
and Turner giggling and talking off to the side in a kind of secretish way, does she fire her? I think she doesn't fire her on that day, but I think she definitely, you know, is scrutinizing her if we're, if we're moving forward. But seeing her talk to Larry and that and that whole thing, oh my God, it was so nail in the coffin. I was like, lady, you are out. You are so freaking out. Let's listen to Bertha, how she fires uh, Turner, because I think it might be the most casual firing I've ever seen. Turner, I've been thinking, and I wonder if it isn't time for us to take a rest from each other. What? We don't get on as we used to. Like all employers, you set the tone. See what I mean? Is this Mr. Russell's idea because... No, but he's asked me to give you a good reference, and despite some misgivings, I will. There's no need to imply your work's not excellent. What were you going to say? Nothing, madam. Nothing at all. We talked about the episode theme from last week was impulse control and those who have it and those who don't and those who lose control of their emotions. This is superb impulse control on Turner's part. She goes to say something and she doesn't. And she quickly, quickly makes an alternative plan instead of blowing up George and 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 them and that spot and that whole thing that she has in her pocket. She's got that bullet in the chamber and she doesn't. I give her a lot of credit for that from a devious planning and in a impulse control way i give her a lot of credit for not losing her shit here 100 percent same i was like wow she really pulled back which i didn't expect turner to do i mean I, she's so like angry all the time it seems but she has maintained some idea that she has a plan a much bigger plan and she wants to get the better of the russells so i mean she was cool about it it was funny the way you're saying, like, how she's like, I don't think we get along, you know, the way anymore. And then she was like, what do you mean? She's like, there you go again. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was like nothing. I take, was I take the tone from, from you, mistress. Oh, see what I mean? Just what I expected you to say. Always causing a problem. <laughs> we don't get along. We don't get on as we did. We, we should take a break from each other. Well, yeah, we friends. should take a break from each other. This, this is friends. Like, this is, this is Ross and Rachel. The, yeah, she's it was up here. funny. Turner does have a plan and she she delays instant gratification, you know, like your husband's seen my nude boobs. Knows where my moles are. She does ask, is this coming from Mr. Russell? Which is Bertha doesn't pick up on or harp on beyond saying no. And actually, he wants to give you a good recommendation, which I'm okay with. Hearing that, like she switches gears really fast and it gets you to this scene, which comes up uh, just two scenes later. What are you doing here? Did you have me sacked? No. And I got you a good reference. So I should be grateful. That's up to you. How's the train crash inquiry? What do you care? I care very much that you should emerge unscathed. You see, you missed something in me. I was offering you a woman who would devote her life to your success, your health, and your happiness. Could Mrs. Russell say the same? I'd have loved you to the exclusion of everything else. Well, I'll say good night. Perhaps we'll meet again. I doubt it. Turner is so freaking bold. Oh my God. I had asked you in the previous episodes, like, would she take another, like, 
you know, dive basically, like come in that room again. And we were like, oh, I don't think so. Not this nude thing. But this, this was like taking a second swipe because she comes in there. She is just like so freaking bold. I, I'm shocked that he doesn't like jump out of bed or do something more than that. I mean, what would you do if this was like a second time Turner's coming in? And you know, she's already got the capacity to just show you all the moles. George is in a weakened state here because of the train investigation. I, I, I think his brain is confused, right? This idea of like, what are you doing? When he says, what are you doing in here? I think it's as much like literal confusion of like, I'm facing a homicide charge. Why are you in my room? <laughs> like, I don't even have the capacity for this nonsense. I mm. think she does herself and her plot so much more good here than 15 of showing him all the moles earlier on would have been. <laughs> Be and and not and and in no small part because of the tension with Bertha, especially with priorities and this train investigation and the lack of of a fully unified front. She's catching him at exactly the right moment and saying the really right words. This is you have to imagine this is not unlike what Mrs. Chamberlain must have sounded like twenty years ago. Oh, a billion percent. I you missed something in me. I love that line. You missed something in me. I would have loved you to the exclusion of everything else can mrs russell say the same george knows that he she can't say the same because they've literally been fighting about it for two episodes she has got another man in her life right now platonic as it may be but it's no less intense bertha's attention is not is is split right now when she says perhaps we'll meet again and he says not likely <laughs> I think that basically assures in TV land they're going to meet again. Oh, a thousand billion percent. Yes, they're obviously going to meet back up. And the fatal flaw in her comments is that uh, that the that Bertha owes it to George to be solely focused on him and nothing else. And I understand that that like completely serves up, you know, to his ego. What she's missing in them is that they're willing to be two people who work together and that they are allowed to have their own little projects and their own things that they're doing and whatever, you know, they don't have to be solely focused on one another to the exclusion of all other things. Like, I don't even know that George would be interested in that woman. I think he wants a woman who has her own aspirations. The only devil's advocate response to that is a similar pitch last time, right? She said, I would have been a, I would have built a temple to you and like an altar to you. He takes the time when she's all, you know, nude in his bed to say, I already have that with my wife and everything. She already gives me everything I need. And the fatal flaw in your plan is I love her. There's no such, there's no defense of Bertha in this scene because mm. Turner is picking her place so well, either because she has heard the arguments going on in the house or just senses the vibe in a room. She he knows there is a stress fracture over this train investigation and Bertha's ambitions right now at this very specific moment. She's picking her place extremely well to plant the seed of I, I could use a little exclusion to everyone else at this very moment. I'm facing a homicide charge and I keep hearing about fucking Warren McAllister. Whereas last time, George took the time to do a full defense of his love for his wife and how his wife provides everything. There's no such defense here. It's not like she was running out of the room he could have he didn't so now with turner being on the outs with with the russells and uh you know on her way what do you think are we going to see more of her does she just continue to talk to oscar what's going to happen with her 
The question is, does she become an Anne Morris, right? Does she fade into the background or does she continue to plot? I feel like, what episode are we in? This is episode seven. There's only nine to go. She's either going to blow shit up in the finale or this is going to be something that holds over to the season two since we know it's been renewed. She takes her time. I don't think she's a woman who rushes. I think she needs to kind of reorganize and and double her efforts, maybe come up with a fake pregnancy or something that she could pin (laughs) on him. This smells like a regrouping. Like, I... I don't know if she has enough time to figure out something by nine here. Uh, so I'm going to go with second season on her as a slow burn. Keeping tabs, if she can somehow manage to keep tabs and and keep uh, an eye on how Bertha and George are doing. So we're going to talk about them next. I mean, the stress fractures are there and they continue to grow. Maybe not huge, but they're, they're more in this episode than ever before. And last week we said that there were stress fractures for the first time that we had never seen before. So maybe she can keep an eye on the relationship i don't know yeah i think season two sounds right i think she's gonna regroup i think she's gonna come back with a plan but we're definitely gonna see her again the line of maybe we'll see each other again i i should think not i think all but guarantees that we're gonna see her again yeah it was a complete wink at us like she's gonna i mean from her point of view this is the best setup i professionally accepted my firing i didn't burn any bridges i didn't stab anyone i earned some goodwill by by ratting out to church to banister yeah jeez what do you think about that I, I well you know it's kind of funny i mean just when she says earlier in the episode he's too big for his britches when she's uh going at him at, at church i <laughs> turner just has these invented animosities you know but church was telling her i mean he was doing some really funny responses to her he was like get it back in your cage and i wrote that one down and i was like oh my god i want to say that to people now <laughs> when yeah. they come at you <laughs> Uh, did you okay? Did you hear cage? Because I wrote down cave. I was oh, like, maybe it was cave. cave. Maybe it was like cave. it was like a troll kind of thing. Yeah, maybe it, it might have been cave. I didn't. I didn't pull the clip. But yeah, like I a mean, big grizzly bear. You know. So I like this idea that she she's just. I mean, she's burning bridges, but she's doing it in a really subtle way. She's settling scores that maybe other people didn't even know needed to be settled. The, the question is, what does Bannister do now that he has this information that it was Church who ratted him out to Agnes? What did you think of Agnes? and Bannister and keeping him in the doghouse. How long do you think that goes on for? Oh, how long do I think that's going to go on for? I mean, she has the wherewithal to keep this going for a very long time. Shoot. And she is hurt. So I would like to think by episode nine, they are going to be cool with each other. But it might be a season two for a true, like, everybody's okay again. I mean, she's really mad. Beyond that, I think she's hurt. Very much. You have to imagine Bannister has been with her for time of memoriam mm-hmm. and she sees this as a slight this is i mean as far as she has an invented mortal enemy it's bertha russell and everything right. the russells represent and for him to go there it's not like he went off to run a lunch for mrs astor or for the fanes this is her blood enemy literally across the street this is hatfield and mccoy's from agnes's point of view so i think it's gonna linger for a while looked at her face lied made up the fasting monk, the fasting story. monk. you know like the whole thing i mean lied to her and i have to you know as someone who 
has had people working in my home because my kids have special needs. There is an intense requirement of trust between you and this person who is in your home every day. If you feel like they will lie to your face, if you feel like they will go behind your back and go do whatever. I mean, you have to imagine in Agnes's head, Bannister could have been talking about her, talking about her private business over in the Russell's house. That honestly, like when I even put it out there like that for my own self, I don't know that I could keep people around that I knew were doing anything like that, that were that were working for someone else who I completely hated or just lying to my face about what they were doing. I would feel like, how can I have you in my house day in and day out now? Yeah, I'm definitely going second season now because now I'm like, no, I'd be pissed. Why didn't she just fire him? Well, we had this conversation a little bit last week about Armstrong. You know, yeah. she she's someone who she's a creature of her comfort. I think that was, you know, a creature of her habit. And she doesn't want to train someone else. That's how I felt. In the same way, she wants to slow the march of progress that, that Bertha tells Ward we can't do anything about it. Time marches on. Getting rid of Bannister would be so much change. I think it would wreck her world. And I think that she needs him to suffer. You know, she needs him to feel how angry she is for a long period of time. And and remember, it's not just what Bannister did. It's what his actions prompted her to do. The embarrassment of being in that in that luncheon. I mean, that is what is really going to continue. I mean, if she starts to just ease up on Bannister for a minute, remembering the humiliation in that in that luncheon room is going to just reignite her anger. Let's talk about this last meeting between Oscar and Turner and then Turner and then Oscar and John. First, we have to talk about outfitting. I think uh, Oscar <laughs> looks like he's come out of the coolest ass <laughs> steampunk future novel ever in his yeah. little his little sunglasses his and his just passion. Mm. everything about it. I, I was digging this outfit in the park in a way yeah. yeah, that I was like, I would wear that today and I think I would look fly as hell. He's very stylish. I uh, All of his stuff, I'm like paying attention to all his little accessories. We also, we had learned earlier in the episode that he took Turner's advice and sent a letter of support to George in wake of the train accident, which George mentions. I mean, it, it had an effect on him. He mentions it to Bertha. So clearly something that, that looks like it worked. Turner... All in all, good spy for Oscar, right? I mean, gave him good information, gave him good advice. You have to think, you know, she's coming. Gladys is going to be coming out now, so maybe her advice would be less needed. But this seems like an ally that Oscar has to be sad to lose a little bit, I would think. Absolutely. It, it is the little highway to information for him to, and on in business in general, but also most especially Gladys. I mean, getting all the information for that whole story is huge for him. So, yeah, this is a huge loss of someone on the inside who is willing to, for money, <laughs> tell him whatever. Let's talk about Gladys. Let's shift to her a little bit because we're, we're uh, on the back of the creepy ass doll tea party from last week. Yeah. Carrie Astor and Gladys Russell seem to be striking up quite the friendship. And we've got this quadrille. This quadrille is a go. Do you know what a quadrille is? Is that like a fancy Southern lady thing that I just don't know about? <laughs> I didn't know what it was, um, I, but I, you know, I did look it up. I did look it up. The funny thing for me about this entire setup and this idea that the parents are going to come watch. Okay, so I had this whole experience where my youngest was like four. They said, oh, come to the school 
in the, in the at night. It was like a 7 p.m. situation. Come to the school, all you parents, because the little guys, these four-year-olds, were going to do like a little square dance. I kept scratching my head the whole time. Like, why have they asked us to come at night for this little square dance thing? This is totally the type of thing you do during the normal school day. Whatever parents can show up, come to this little thing, right? Oh, no, I'm so right to be <laughs> suspicious because we sit down and I'm like, where are the kids? And this entire auditorium is full. Before we start this like 15 minute kid display, first things first, we're going to start our PTA meeting in which we have to have elections and all this stuff. And all the parents are like, what? Like you saw like the doors like yank closed. Now you're all here. <laughs> Everyone was like sheer panic. Bertha's whole like secondary agenda about society and what, what strings she's going to pull. She was the PTA man. And here were these little kids excited about having this dance, but they were just the smoke screen in order to get us in there. And I felt so freaking betrayed. My kid is 18 now. And that is locked in my brain as like one of those times when like, I didn't see it coming. And I got totally freaking swindled in that stitch. Like, I don't want to go to that stupid meeting. We need to be able to tell anyone we ask when the ball is happening. Then we'd better call it off. Why do you say that? Because you won't set a date. Every time I ask, you refuse. That was before the house was ready. Now it is. I'll write to Mr. McAllister to find a date that's free. We don't want to be in competition. What's changed, Mother? Why are you talking as if I met you to be the first debutante in the city who never made her debut? We'll get a pianist in for your practice, and perhaps you have the name of a dancing instructor. Of course. The men and girls who will join in your quadrille, should I ask their parents if they mind? Oh, no, they'll all love Gladys, and they're dying to stay inside this house. Everyone is. Well, I'll ask them to the ball so they can watch their children perform. They mustn't miss that. She is the PTA of her time, Caroline. She's the PTA president, man. <laughs> I'm going to get the parents of these hoity-toity Psy Society people, including Mrs. Astor as the parent of Carrie Astor. I'm going to get butts in seats, and that is how I'm getting them in this house. Can you believe how diabolical that freaking PTA president was? That was pretty, that's pretty diabolical. That was pretty sneaky. I mean, if you look at it for like in hindsight with the nighttime and all that, maybe some questions uh, should have been asked. But yes, I'm very telling sneaky. you, preschoolers, nighttime, this made no sense. <laughs> I smelt it. Damn it. I invited my parents. They had extra people voting at that big DA meeting. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that probably uh, invalidates the results of it. It was the best attended PTA meeting I think they ever had for the for the three minute. Uh, the problem is you can't do it every time now because you, you got to let enough time to go for people to forget. Exactly. And people like you never forgot. So it was like, oh, no, here I am 14 years later, still like butthurt that I got tricked. Your kids come to you and be like, Mom, we're, we're, we have a dance. We're going to be like, no. No, don't invite me. No. If you invite me, I'm not coming. <laughs> uh, what do you think? This is I, this is subtle, but this is Bertha's plan revealed. Effective? Has she manipulated this entire situation? I just explained how freaking effective it is. Every parent was in that place. It is very effective. Bravo. This is a good storyline. I like Gladys and Carrie together. I think they each bring something to a friendship that the other is missing. Carrie is surrounded by people who her parents or her mother mainly have probably set her up with her entire life. And here is Gladys Russell, someone that she made friends with all on her own. 
And Gladys has a friend, a someone near her age that she is getting to talk with and and commiserate with. I mean, uh, let's listen to this clip. Uh, it's what I've called the pushy people clip. My golly. I thought we might practice in here. By the way, got to start using my golly a lot more. I'm uh, criminally underusing my golly as an, uh, an exasperation. My golly. I thought we might practice in here. We could rehearse a new production of Aida in here and still have plenty of room to spare. The thing is, I assume we need some more people. Six more for a quadrille. Two more girls and four men, but don't worry. Angela Skirmahorn loves dancing and she's a cousin of mine. And Sally Drexel. And I could easily round up a few young men. Maybe we could ask Orm Wilson. Why is your mother so dead set against him? Judging by the society pages, his family goes everywhere. It's the problem. She thinks them pushy. Father was a war profiteer, so they say, and the sister has married Ogden Goelet, one of the richest men in America. Of course, everyone thinks he's been caught. So your mother doesn't trust Mr. Wilson's motives? To put it mildly. But you do? To put it mildly? In that case, we'll definitely have him as one of our dancers. I'm going to give a little spoilers here for the real world. Are you ready for some spoilers, Caroline? I am buckled in. Carrie Astor would actually go on to marry Orm Wilson. Orm Wilson from the family that became known in the Gilded Age as the quote-unquote marrying Wilsons, because all five, I believe there are five siblings, all married into powerful or moneyed families of the Gilded Age. The father, in fact, was considered a war profiteer, was a Southerner, and had a lot of taint on him when, he, when they came to New York. Uh, reportedly, Carrie, quote, starved herself into bulimia until her mother gave in and agreed to the marriage. So what we're seeing here is just the tip of the iceberg before Carrie Astor is finally going to be allowed to be with Orm Wilson. But we'll have up on Facebook uh, some of the friends that uh, Carrie mentions in this, uh, uh, Sally Drexel and Orm Wilson and the Marrying Wilsons. There's some really interesting information relating to all of these real famous people that she is referencing here. But yes, Orm and uh, Orm and Carrie are meant to be, but it is going to be an uphill struggle for them to get married. How smart, though, that these girls are even figuring out, like, this is a way to get you to get a chance to spend time with him by having all the dances and stuff like they, they, they this these are fast friends and i'm so glad carrie is not turning out to be a mean girl not gonna embarrass you know gladys in some horrifying way there's actual benefit for all of them here for those that are thinking about it i, I hope you're going back to our episode two i believe it was episode two when i related the story of alva vanderbilt throwing a ball for her daughter and using her daughter's ball as a way to leverage herself into society. Basically, the same under the same rubric that Bertha is working from here, I'm going to invite all of the parents of the of the people who are attending the my daughter's ball. I'm invi- I'm going to invite them and they need to come like the, that becomes kind of a requirement. You can't just sit the ball out. So I, I think I hope you're seeing with Bertha's plan revealed here some of those similarities between Bertha Russell and Alva Vanderbilt. Both Russell kids finally getting storylines, moving full steam ahead here in the back end, back half of the season. Let's talk about good old Larry Russell. The presentation going so well it seemed like a good time for him to broach the architect news with Stanford there and Gladys, and everyone is very happy and slapping George on the back. But uh, let's listen to the clip because it it doesn't go great right away. I'd like to be an architect. I don't understand you. What? He wants to study architecture. And of course, I'd be only too happy to help him. 
Where has this come from? I've been trying to tell you for some time. No, you haven't. Well, I've wanted to tell you. But you have a job. Here with me. I know. But, Mr. Russell, I think that Larry just wants to learn about the principles of architecture. After three or four years, he could then employ his skills in the management of your business interests. Is that what you want? No. I want to be an architect. You see, Mr. White, my son disdains your peacemaking compromise. I believe Larry has talent, if that might make a difference. It won't. And now I'll put your mother and sister into the carriage. Please see to our guests. And I, I felt bad, actually, for Stanford in that clip more than anyone else. He comes up with a really great compromise, and Larry's like, no. So I was thinking about it, and here's the thing. Once you get to the point of telling the truth to your dad, when you really just want to be like, this is what I want to do with my life. And it is so difficult to actually have that conversation. You don't want to go in with a half-truth. You're not feeling appeased enough to say, like, you know what? Yeah, okay, let's just say... I'm just doing this to kind of learn that side of the business in order to use it for our business, dad. Like, that's really why I'm doing it. He doesn't like that's not good enough for him. He wants the full approval for if I am an architect and an architect only, I want you to be okay with that. Now, as adult people, you and I are like, go for the half truth. Later on, when he sees you're good at it, then he'll be cool with you making this be your full time career and not actually using this for Russell Consolidate. But I mean, Larry wants the truth out there as an adult and a father. I'm like, go, go seize on Stanford. He's making a he's making an argument that uh, that George will buy, you know, but from Larry's point of view. I get it. I get the, no, no, this is my truth. I, I finally have gathered up my energy and my courage to do this. So now you're going to hear my truth. I, I give Larry a lot of credit because he doesn't let it drop. He doesn't let himself be, be defeated. And much like Turner, who makes her second go at George much more persuasive, so does Larry. Let's listen to Larry's second go at his father in this episode. What would you prefer me to do? What you're doing now, of course. You must study my business and take it over in time. What is it? Father, you're a genius. You made a fortune that will go down in legend. I doubt there are a dozen men as successful as you in this country. I doubt there are a hundred in the world. You're very kind. What chance do you think I have of equaling that if I follow in your footsteps? Well... I must always be the disappointing son of a great man. The poor second act, the failure. But if I take another path entirely, like architecture, I have the chance to make a mark of my own. And my companies? You'll find and train men to take them over, who'll protect my future in Gladys's and make sure the business outlives us all. You're persuasive. I'll give you that. And I promise to think about it. It's a great argument. I don't want to be the second, the poor second act. And you don't want that either. I can't ever make a path for myself because you've done too, too good of a job. And fair for dad to say, I'll think about it. That's fair. That's as good as you were going to get tonight was I will think about it. That Take that as a win. Take it as a full win. Yeah, but I think he really made him think, though. I think he I think he, he presented did. the argument to George in a way George had not considered and had an answer for what about the companies? And he's like, you're going to get better people than I ever could be to protect me and Gladys. I think he was hitting all of the right notes. I take it as a full win for Larry that he got. A, I will think about it. And he got all of his words out and he did. 
didn't do a half truth. Good on him. Good for Larry. I keep calling him in my head season two Larry <laughs> because I think I don't know how much more we're going to get with Larry in season one, but I really feel like he's going to blossom in season two. So in my head, I'm like, hey, season two Larry. That's literally what I keep calling him. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so a little behind the scenes is all of these clips that I play, I have to name uh, just so I, I know what they are as like little reminders to myself when I'm going to click on them. I name this one Go Larry. <laughs> I see it, and I would have named it Season 2 Larry. <laughs> see, very supportive of it. Because I'm like, I see you having a whole future here, but uh, but not yet. Not yet. We're winding down on, on people in this episode, but we've been dancing around George and Bertha and their continued stress fracture. See, but I also thought it was not as bad at first as I thought it was going to be. So I'm going to say stress fracture, but like tug of war. Like it's a push and pull with these two. It's not all bad. There are unified moments in this episode. There are very divided moments in this episode, which at the end of the day probably feels right. Right. It probably feels real. Yeah. Married couples, yeah. they have their moments where they're together on the same page and then they have their moments where they're not on the same page. And we're going to play both clips and see if they all fit together. And there will be a hearing to determine if a crime has been committed and whether it should go for trial. Well, haven't they already found the man to blame? That depends. Some people may think the man to blame is your husband. Don't joke about this, George. I'm not joking. We can't afford a scandal, not when I'm so near. I'm taking a party to see Mr. Edison's lights, and I've set a date for Gladys's ball. I'm glad to hear it. But it won't happen if you're on trial. I'd have to cancel. My dear, I don't make the rules. I will do everything within my power to defend myself. What more can I say? But I've already settled a date with Mr. McAllister. Well, God forbid I should be a disappointment for Mr. McAllister. If you think this is funny... I don't think it in the least funny that I'm facing the possibility of prison, and my wife is more concerned with the date of a ball. Ouch. <laughs> earlier in the episode, early in the episode, he tells her that he's always impressed with her confidence of victory. I think Bertha's confidence of victory is Bertha's confidence of victory, primarily. And when it lines up where they're a team, great. And she fully embraces that. But she will not take a back seat for the two of them together if it conflicts with her own social ambitions. He's facing prison time for murder. She's talking about a fucking picnic to watch a light bulb go on. It, it seems pretty Ooh. egregious to me. There has to be a moderation for when social climbing takes a priority's backseat to criminal prosecution. No? Maybe I'm off base. I think you're off base with playing it down. I think you're right that in that conversation, it's right to let it go and not talk about the ball right then and just kind of talk about how he's feeling, what's going on. Obviously, the whole trial uh, looming concept is something that has to be her primary conversation with him. However, I, I'm going to, you know, we've had this since actually episode one where I've said you cannot keep separating society from business and act like one doesn't affect the other. Like I, you and I've had a plenty of uh, disagreement here about what is more important, business or society. Even you saying like, you know, what is she trying to put her like agenda? Guess what? They're both allowed to put their agendas on the table. They're both allowed to do that. And I'm not, I am not going to suddenly abandon Bertha and say, no, 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 you should just put all your stuff away, like slide your arm across the table and put all your things that you're working on to the side. Should she talk about George's issue? 1000%. It 1000% affects their entire lives. But it shouldn't be like, 
and you can't talk about anything that you're working on. Like, bullshit. Like, come on. I'm not saying she put her suit away, but I'm saying there's priorities, though. If something has to take precedence over something else, it's rare two things can be of equal importance. And so when she's coming at him with, you know, how could they possibly think that and then goes off in the direction of it's going to ruin my picnic that I've already set with Ward McAllister. And he's like, record scratch. What? It's mm-hmm. it's going to put me in jail. Like, what are you talking about? That is conflicting priorities. I was taken aback. She doesn't really ever have sympathy for him, except for when it doesn't conflict with her plans with Ward. I think she just knows that he didn't do it. And so she's like, we're going to figure this out. You know, you didn't do it. We're going to figure it out. We'll get what you need. We've identified the guy. She's not all ruffled because she doesn't think that he did anything wrong. So then she's like, all we have to do is just like get out the facts and everything's going to be fine. That's where she's coming from when I mean, that's what she says, you know, that she just is like, we've already identified the guy like you're not. Why would you be the one in trouble? I I think she just has more faith in George and the, and the people who are defending him and figuring out all the work here that like she, he didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing to be uncovered that's going to be a problem. Now, is that is that fair? Should she just lean on that? Probably not. You know, I'm I don't think that that's a smart way to behave right now. I hear you on priorities, but it's kind of like saying like, so then that's the only thing you can talk about. I don't know. I mean, we have kids. This is a big deal. Everything we have been talking about does include glass and all the things that are going on like mm, yes we're a thousand percent going to talk about business first and foremost every night and every day that you need to but there's also other things going on and it's okay to talk about other things too even with this date i think he even says to her well that's great that you've set a date for the ball because he's been mm-hmm. he's wanted her gladys to have her coming out and stuff so i don't think he's even putting that aside but when it gets to the point of i'm talking about facing jail time and you're talking about a picnic with ward i don't know it, it seems it seems it seems tone deaf to me she runs an entire household with a lot of other people besides george george is only thinking about george and i get that and that's how and that's fine. And she's not saying don't just only think about yourself, but he is only thinking about himself. And she's like, there are other things like the world keeps spinning outside of George's. And so all I'm saying is like, is it really that bad for her to say this is going to affect other people too? Like, is that really like evil to say? I understand it's not on the same level. I understand it's not prison. I get that. But like, it's really myopic to be like, it's okay for George to be completely selfish and only think about the business and not about how it's going to affect the rest of this house. But it's out of control for Bertha to think about other people. And you know what I'm saying? Like, uh... (laughs) I don't disagree with you. I think it's how she presents it. I think the tone and the verbiage that she chooses comes off... A, a bit cold and and a bit tone. A thousand percent. She should have finished out everything he wanted to talk about with business and should not have had that sort of mixed message of like, it's support, but it's coming off dismissive. That's the word. It comes up right. She's coming off as being dismissive of him. Right. right? But it's actually, if you peel it back, it's actually 
full trust and support in him that that he didn't do anything wrong and so everything's going to be okay so we can talk about other matters too but it is coming off like i'm not spending enough time you know letting you vent and be worried about all this stuff it's too dismissive i agree that's a great segue because later on they have another conversation this is where this is the same conversation where bertha brings up the idea of firing turner part of that conversation is george is explaining to her i do send letters to my department heads and they can prove that so the fact that this letter that is being proffered that i sent to dixon saying the price is ridiculous find a cheaper way you know make it work with his signature that is something that along maybe not the content but the idea of that kind of letter existing to a department head exists and also he makes this point that i'm also a wealthy man and so there i'm a villain in the eyes of a jury if it ever comes to that fair is is he playing a little too victimy here or does he have the right of it in a way that maybe she's not thinking about it that at the end of the day our criminal justice system is not perfect insofar as it comes down to people believing or not believing people i definitely think it's having that second conversation allows her to have a better understanding of what he is worried about whether it's totally warranted whether or not you know it's the facts are there and so he doesn't need to be worrying about it so much the all that doesn't matter it's really that this, these are the things. Let me explain why beyond the fact that we've identified this guy and beyond the fact that you know I didn't do anything, there's this other element that I'm concerned that it's just not going to play out in my favor in the court system. So I think that that was super important to explain it to her more, but that's just a communication thing. It's way better than him just yelling like, you just care about a ball and like all that kind of crap, you know, <laughs> like way better to actually explain more. I think the second conversation overall is a much better conversation because then she has this clip right here. How can anyone believe you'd make direct contact with some minor little cog like Dixon? It's absurd. I do write notes to people in every department. They can prove that. And remember, I'm a rich man, which means I'm a villain. Certainly in a jury's eyes, if it ever gets that far. Well, I intend to pay it no notice. And I've confirmed the excursion to watch Mr. Edison turn on his lights. Really? You won't cancel? I was going to tell him I can't come. You'll do no such thing. We'll face this together, George. We'll tell them how it's going to be. If it helps you to believe we're in control of things. We'll face together and we'll tell them how it's be how it's going to be. This is George and Bertha that we're used to seeing. That first conversation feels so we're we're both seeing red from our own points of view that we're not seeing each other. This seems like the mm-hmm. conversation that we've seen them have. And and I this is the George and Bertha that I really like. I don't like the priorities clip, you know, uh conversation. That that gives me agita. This is the George and Bertha that I wanna root for and, and can kind of kick ass and take over the world together. It's actual communication. It's not just like, I can't believe you're talking about that. I can't believe you're talking about that. You know, this is like let me explain what is making me worry. And but his last comment isn't exactly nice. I mean, his comment of like, if it helps you to feel like we're in control of things, that's not actually a nice thing to say. (laughs) I mean, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, get out of my face. (laughs) Because I think it's a concession to her, we're going to proceed ahead and and control things, but he's doubting himself. She she doesn't think anyone could ever find him guilty, but he's doubting. He knows that this is going to come down to a personality conference contest at some point, possibly. And money, and money. Like, where, what is being perceived about his character? I, I think it's fascinating that he used the words villain and stuff because we had talked about that in the last episode of, like, 
is he set up to become a villain because of the wealth, because of the corruption that can come from all of that? Like, is he sort of fated to become a villain? If we get into season three, I'm going to come back to this and be like, uh, foreshadowing. Well, if he starts stepping Turner, for sure. All the things, all the villainous things. <laughs> I agree with you if it helps you to think we're in control it has an edge to it, but I think it's born more out of his doubt about himself. And the court system. Yeah, right, exactly. The court of public opinion, too. George often sleeps better at night because of his wife and her confidence and her belief in them. But, I, I mean, sometimes sometimes there are doubts that you're facing that you can't fully express or, or make your partner understand, but they keep you awake and they, they cause you panic and they, they cause you anxiety. And I think that's what George is, is feeling here. When we were talking stress fracture in the last episode, I was like, man, I do not want to see a bunch of snipping, bickering, shitting on each other, Russell scenes moving forward to the end of this season. So I was really glad to get this seesaw of like, yeah, there's, there, you can feel the tension in this house for both of them, both of their goals. And, and we can keep downplaying Bertha's goal, but I'm not going to. Both of their goals are important. It's not that her goals are less. It's just that facing a criminal prosecution destroys all of their lives. It destroys his life, her life, their kid's life, that whole family's life. That house goes away. It's significant. It's not just I can't close a deal or buy a railroad track or even get my train station built versus War McAllister and the dates. A criminal trial for for murder for five people seems more significant than upsetting the apple cart socially, which, again, is important, but less important than facing a trial for five murders. Yeah, I agree, but I'm just not going to downplay Bertha's whole situation. That's all. Because she is at the end of the line. She is at the ward, Mrs. Astor, big moment. So yeah, a thousand percent, every part of what you're saying about the trial and, and being on trial for murder, yes, 1000% important. And also everything that Bertha's is worried about actually affects their life too. And, and I think it will play out that way. We have seen so much of the societal stuff affecting business and business affecting societal stuff. We, we cannot not have them be linked. This was a good coming together, the in control moment. This was them aligning back up again as they normally do. But then you have this clip as they're both heading off to the Edison lighting affair. But remember, he's going to be on stage on the dais with Thomas Edison, and she's going to be in the carriage with her party and watching the same affair. But they had this clip here before they part ways. I like your spirit. We won't be defeated, George. I, right there. Just simple, simple words. I like your spirit. We won't be defeated, George. We and won't be defeated. That's how these that's how these two are best when they are aligned together. I have to say it was so beautiful in the carriage with the picnic scene that they were having there at the actual Edison event. And then to have Peggy, you know, over in in like the food truck area, sort of, you know, the food little wagon amongst, uh, amongst the people. Yeah. And getting snacks and all that stuff. Like I was I was kind of asking myself and I'll ask you, which would you rather be in? Would you rather be sitting at the picnic in the carriage or would you rather be like hanging out at the food trucks and and kind of laughing and talking amongst everybody? I would have rather been in the in the carriage. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I would have rather been. In Me too. I was like, that looks so amazing. <laughs> I have lived in New York for 44 years and I have never gone to Times Square on New Year's Eve. There's a reason. 
I don't want to be elbow Only to elbow. If you were sitting in a candlelit carriage uh, eating good food, that would be that would be worth it. <laughs> Call me bougie as fuck, but I've been to the Thanksgiving Day Parade in a building on a second floor watching behind a window, not out amongst the people screaming and getting <laughs> peed on and the dead shit. You no, peed on? Nasty. Uh, people get really excited about the lights turning on. Uh, Thomas Edison and, and George are on the dais together and they shake hands and they had this nice little moment about the age we're living in that I liked. Congratulations. This is quite an achievement. This is the age of achievement, Mr. Russell. An age when anything is possible. I like that. And I will remember it. <laughs> age of achievement, age of possibility. That's George's like calling card. That's like his whole thing. I'm looking forward to everything that's going to be coming during the Gilded Age because I think there's going to be invention after invention. That's going to be so fun to like see. And when we had Ward say it's a turning point in history, but are we headed in the right direction? I was like, shit, Ward, are we? Are, are we? Are we starting? Is this the fork in the road that brought us to 2022? And like, should we have taken different forks? This is a turning point in history, Mrs. Russell. But are we headed in the right direction? We don't have a choice in the matter, Mr. McAllister. We must go where history takes us. I like that it's Ward that asks that question, because if it's Mrs. Astor or if it's Agnes, it's a statement of we're headed in the wrong direction. Ward is much more progressive, at least how Warren McAllister is being portrayed in the show, is much more progressive and really is following the money than is concerned less about the old rules and the new rules. He just wants to follow the money rules. And so I like that it was him, this one who straddles these worlds, this gatekeeper, the Cerberus, asking the question of, I'm uneasy if we're going in the right direction. Maybe I like the older ways where we live by candlelight and gas lamps instead of light bulbs. And of course, Bertha has to be the one that answers it. Well, and it's a way bigger question, right? Because it has to also do with society as well in terms of here's Ward, old everything, and all the old ways and all the old money. And then here's Russell saying, oh, no, but like we have to just go that way. Like, it, you know, it, I think it's asking the question of the way bigger picture of all of them. Peggy didn't have much to do in this episode. She has that moment where she has to tell Marion that she's going to the lighting and it feels sheepish about it, right? She's she's almost a little embarrassed that Marion's not getting to go, but she is. I love that Peggy is getting to go. I like that she cared about Marion's feelings yes. and was going to try to like hold it back a little bit from her because she knew she'd feel sad about not going. That was a good indicator of where they are in their friendship. Almost like, please don't ask me what I'm doing tonight. Please don't ask me what I'm doing Kinda, tonight. Yeah, yeah, because you're going to really want to want to have gone and uh. but think about how how Peggy's world is opening up though that she and and uh mr fortune are getting to go to this event and cover this she's being a journalist she's out there she's interviewing the people on the she's she's peggy on the street you know like she's out there doing <laughs> yeah. the thing this is a, a young woman who a handful of episodes ago didn't know she was going to have to go back to brooklyn and work in her father's pharmacy and here she is she's a published author she's rubbing elbows with clara barton she's at Le edison's lighting event when other people of high society aren't even getting to go she's got a seat at the table now i love i love where peggy's journey is going i was excited actually to see mr fortune go with her and that they were starting to have scenes of them together out in the world it gives me a lot of hope that we might actually see more of that because i would really like the two of them together 
Yeah. Now, so here's the little rub about Mr. Fortune. In the real world, Thomas Fortune was actually married. I believe he got married in like 1876 or 1878. There's been no mention of that in this fictional The Gilded Age world. So I'm curious if he is going to be a single man or a married man because they haven't put them together romantically. Their their chemistry is there and I think their chemistry is off the chart. So you know I'm a big shipper. I like when people kiss. Like I'm all about it. <laughs> um, but I'm curious if they're going to portray him being, as being married or not or if that comes up or not or if they're even going to put them together are they just going to have a professional platonic working relationship i don't know i'm curious i like seeing them together like i said they have fantastic chemistry but um i feel like the pull to do a romantic storyline is just too great for people to resist for very long 100 percent. i was super glad for them to get out of the office and see them in action see peggy in action i'm excited for her and where her story is going to go now because i feel like we're going to start covering other historical events too which could be really cool for us as the audience to get a chance to see all these changes that they keep talking about uh one thing that peggy and and mr fortune and their storyline got to contribute tonight was that they got to mention lewis latimer who was a person of color a man of color who was a self-taught electrical like pioneer he was a he was uh, an engineer who taught himself. He was born born from slave parents. He went to work. He at one point worked with Alexander Graham Bell. He worked with uh, Edison. He actually holds like the patent for the improved manufacturing carbon filament, which which Mr. Fortune explains in this episode. But like that's real. Edison's light bulb doesn't become the commercial success without this, you know, person of color contributing an essential aspect to it you know he holds the patent on it he works for three of the greatest inventors that we remember in this country you know towards the end of the 19th century and here he is the show is like putting a light on him with someone i hadn't known i had heard the name but i really didn't know anything about him at all until i started digging into him a little bit because of this episode so i like that the show was giving a broader history than we would have normally gotten, maybe even that we would normally get in just our history books. So head to our Facebook page because we'll have more information about Mr. Latimer. Yeah, the world is changing and this episode has come to an end. So we can start thinking about episode eight. Time marches on. Uh, do we have predictions? What's some? What's a storyline that you are very latched into right now? Just one storyline that you're like really drooling to see in the next episode. Well, we didn't talk about it all, but I can play this clip as like set up as one of the things I'm interested in now. Mrs. McAllister is as happy as a clam, tucked up in Newport, listening to the sounds of the sea. I've never been to Newport, but one hears it spoken of so highly. My dear Mrs. Russell, of course you must come to Newport. <laughs> I insist. The town is just waiting for you to tear down its defenses and conquer it. Must everything in life present a challenge? Everything worth having. <laughs> but surely the point of going there is to be by the sea, to feel the wind in your hair and listen to the waves. Then that's all free. Charming as you make it sound, I don't think you have quite captured the spirit of Newport. Hardly. You need four outfits a day at the minimum. Decent jewels and a full dance card. I see. <laughs> Do you know Newport, Mr. Ranks? Not yet. My mother has a place there, and we use it a lot in the season. And a very nice place it is, too. You must let me know when you're planning to visit Mr. Ranks. I will, Miss Bingham. Thank you. I should make a plan at once. You won't regret it. Then I should. We're going to Newport, y'all. I want to see that. I want to see because the Newport houses of the Gilded Age 
were, I mean, in, in many ways, even dwarfed their New York City counterparts because they were right on the beach. They still do mansion tours now. You can go do the Newport mansion tours. A lot of, a lot of the most famous Gilded Age Newport houses actually end up getting built after 1882, but many of them stand today. Yeah, you could totally tour them. Fantastic. So I'm excited for that, for Bertha getting to go to Newport because that does seem like another required step on her road up that long ladder that she's been climbing now for several episodes. This aspect of Mr. Rakes and Aurora watching that interaction between him and Mrs. Bingham. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens with, with Rakes and his behavior and Marion. For me, that's actually a really hot button issue that I'm, I'm interested to see because I feel like the, this marriage, this marry me, you love me, you'll marry me talk. It feels like it's building towards something. So I want to see where we go with that. For me, I'm fully invested in the Russell household and figuring out what is going to happen with George and and this entire ball. Is it going to be the the same situation as we had at the beginning of this season with the housewarming that nobody comes to? Or is Bertha really going to pull this off? So I'm still watching that. And of course, George's trial. Will there be a full trial? Will there just be a hearing? Will he find enough information with a Pinkerton to get something on this guy? I don't know. But I'm very invested. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, that would be fantastic because time marches on. And if we get a five-star review from you, that'll allow us to march on too. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.